Shalom, and thank you for listening at BethEmmanuel.org. If you enjoy the teachings from Beth Emanuel, share the links with your friends. Like us on Facebook and tell your friends about the things you are learning at Beth Emanuel. Help us grow the message. In the previous teaching, we started a discussion on Ephesians 6, 10-18, a well-known and oft-cited passage of the New Testament, popularly referred to as the armor of God. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Ephesians 6, 11-12 To briefly recap our progress so far, we talked about how this passage ties in with the broader theme of the epistle, namely, the inclusion of the Gentiles in the kingdom and their unity with Israel and the Jewish people in the Messiah. To understand the relationship between that theme and the armor of God, we had to do a crash course on Jewish angelology. When Paul says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, he alluded to the story of Jacob wrestling the angel. We learned that most Jewish interpretations of the story identify the angel Jacob wrestled as the Tsar Esau, that is, the angelic prince over the nation of Edom, Esau. We talked about how God divided humanity into 70 nations and appointed an archangel over each nation. Each angelic prince is called a Tsar, that is, a prince corresponding to a principality. God divides the 70 nations among the 70 angels like a man dividing his inheritance among his sons, but he retains the nation of Israel as the Lord's portion and his inheritance. The rest of the nations he divided among these angelic beings, which the Bible sometimes refers to as the sons of God and sometimes just as gods. The cosmic principalities have abused their positions and put themselves in the place of gods over the peoples. They are in some state of rebellion against God, presumably under the sway and influence of Satan, who holds the power over the nations, as he said to Yeshua, All these nations of the earth I will give to you, if you will fall down and worship me. Matthew 4, 8 and 9. We looked at Deuteronomy 32.8, Psalm 82, and Daniel 10, the three main texts from which Jewish angelology derived this idea of a hierarchy of angelic princes over the nations. This is the ancient understanding of the origin behind the false gods of the nations. Despite the claims of the biblical polemic against idolatry, The idols are not merely lifeless objects of wood, stone, and metal. The idols represent the spiritual powers, principalities, authorities, and cosmic powers over this present darkness. For example, the city of Ephesus belonged to Artemis. It was her city. Her temple was there, and in Ephesus, her image was venerated. When Gentiles of Ephesus began turning to monotheism and the God of Israel under the persuasion of Paul's teaching, Their defection inspired a riot. All of this explains the connection between the armor of God at the conclusion of the epistle and the earlier content in the epistle to the Ephesians. Paul and the apostolic community are waging a spiritual battle for the possession of the nations. It's a spiritual battle that's been going on since the fall of Adam. 
As Paul persuades Gentiles in the ancient world to abandon their allegiance to their idolatrous gods and to cast their allegiance with the God of Israel, he incurs the displeasure of the idolatrous gods. The Gentile disciples are contested property. The gods of the nations claim that they belong to them under the authority of the kingdom of darkness. But God is redeeming them, stealing them away from the false gods and adding them to his own portion, as it says at the end of Psalm 82. You are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. You shall inherit all the nations. According to Paul, God uses the redemption of the Gentile disciples to flaunt his wisdom and sovereign power before the principalities, rulers, and authorities in heavenly realms, just as he used the redemption of Israel from Egypt to flaunt his power in front of the Egyptian gods. That is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the assembly of Yeshua, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in the Messiah Yeshua, our master. Ephesians 3, 8-12 The gods of the nations are actively fighting to hold on to their possessions and to thwart the efforts of the assembly of Yeshua. So Paul tells us to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We discovered that the schemes of the devil are primarily at work in interpersonal relationships. Unforgiveness, bitterness, dissensions, discord, quarrels, fights, factions. That's the real spiritual warfare in which we are engaged. We are reminded that our fight is not against one another, or against other disciples of Yeshua, or against the Jewish people. It's not against flesh and blood at all. It's against these unseen spiritual beings and powers. Thus far, all of this is a short summary of what we covered in the previous lesson on Ephesians. It comes down to this. There is a spiritual war against Israel and against the God of Israel. And by becoming disciples of Yeshua, the Gentiles in Ephesus have entered that war. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm, Ephesians 6.13. We are to prepare so that we can stand firm in the evil day. Not an evil day, but the evil day. What is the evil day? You won't find it marked on your calendar, but the prophets speak about it. The evil day is a component of the broader term, the day of the Lord. The evil day refers generally to the travails before the final redemption, and specifically to the battle of Gog and Magog, when the seventy nations will unite to turn against Israel, Ezekiel 38 and 39. It's the last battle, which is also called Armageddon, Revelation 16.16. It's the beginning of the day of judgment that will usher in the end of the age and the messianic era. 
The book of Revelation speaks about Gog and Magog with reference to all nations falling under Satan's deceptions, falling into his schemes, and joining in with his campaign against Israel. The prophecy in the book of Revelation says, Satan will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. Revelation 20, verse 8. Paul warns the Gentile disciples about Satan's schemes because he knows the end game in Satan's overarching scheme. He knows that Satan will deceive the nations. The devil schemes to divide us and fracture us. But his ultimate scheme is to turn the nations, including the Gentile disciples of Yeshua from the nations, against the nation of Israel. The principalities and powers hope to enlist the Gentile disciples as recruits in their war against the Jewish people. This explains the otherwise baffling history of Jewish-Christian relations. It explains the spiritual significance of the last 2,000 years of Christian anti-Semitism. It explains why the nations wage a ceaseless war against Israel and the Jewish people. It explains the Holocaust, and it explains where we stand even today with anti-Israel sentiment, anti-rising anti-Semitism, and the shocking rise of anti-Semitic nationalism in our own country. We are careening on the edge of a terrible plunge. We need to take Paul's warnings seriously, and as disciples today, we need to prepare for the evil day, making sure that we have done all that can be done to stand firm, lest we step into Satan's snares and fall prey to his schemes. In the war of Gog and Magog, there are only two sides, the right side and the wrong side. We don't want to be on the wrong side. When this battle finally comes, it's not going to go well for the nations. Why? Because God is going to fight on behalf of his people in the person of the Messiah, Jewish interpretation considers Psalm 2 to be a prophecy of the final battle. The psalm depicts the nations and the peoples of the earth plotting against the Messiah. The kings of the earth and the ruling principalities conspire together to throw off God's kingdom. The enmity of the nations erupts in the war of Gog and Magog. The Lord installs the Messiah in Zion to fight the nations. He declares to the Messiah, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Psalm 2, 7 and 9. The Messianic prophecies in Isaiah concur. The Messiah's rod of iron, with which he shatters the nations, is to be the word of his mouth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Isaiah 11:4 and 5. The Messiah declares that the words of his mouth have become a weapon of war. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. Isaiah 49:2. A prophecy in Isaiah depicts the Messiah entering the land of Israel from the east. 
He comes like a blood-red sunrise over Edom. His garments are stained red from treading down the nations in his wrath. He explains, Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel, for the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. Isaiah 63, 3 and 4. In Zechariah 14, after the Messiah's feet touched the Mount of Olives, he deploys the sword of his mouth and the iron rod by smiting the nations that have come to conquer Jerusalem. The Messiah smites the armies of the nations with a plague. All of these prophecies of Messiah at war with the nations converge in Revelation 19.15 where it says, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. As the Messiah gears up for the epic battle against the enemies of Israel, he armors himself with righteousness, salvation, vengeance, and zeal. Isaiah 59, 17, and 18 says, He puts on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment. Along similar lines, the wisdom of Solomon depicts the Lord arming himself to go to war against the nations. He shall take to him his jealousy for complete armor and make the creature his weapon for the revenge of his enemies. He shall put on righteousness as a breastplate and true judgment instead of a helmet. He shall take holiness for an invincible shield. His severe wrath shall he sharpen for a sword. And the world shall fight with him against the unwise. Then shall the right aiming thunderbolts go abroad, and from the clouds, as from a well-drawn bow, they shall fly to the mark. And hailstones full of wrath shall be cast as out of a stone bow, and the water of the sea shall rage against them, and the floods shall cruelly drown them. Yea, a mighty wind shall stand up against them, and like a storm, shall blow them away. Wisdom of Solomon 5, 17-23 As the Apostle Paul urges his disciples to prepare for the coming evil day, he arms them for the battle with images from these apocalyptic prophecies about the Messiah at war in the last battle. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, Isaiah 11.5, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, Isaiah 59.17, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, Isaiah 52.7, the shield of faith, wisdom 5.19, the helmet of salvation, Isaiah 59.17, and the sword of the spirit, Isaiah 49.2. The specific function of the various items and the relationship to a specific virtue is probably not as important as the broader theme of identifying oneself with the Messiah as he goes to war. In his first letter to the disciples in Thessalonica, Paul urges them to put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. 
It's obviously the same general idea. But the associations are fluid. Instead of a breastplate of righteousness, it's a breastplate of faith and love. And the shield of faith is absent. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Ephesians 6.16 Satan's attacks come in the form of fiery arrows. The metaphor alludes to the imagery of Psalm 120, which depicts lying lips and a deceitful tongue as a warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals. Psalm 120, verse 4. Satan's flaming darts strike in the form of verbal attacks, evil speech, slander, character assassination, malicious talk, gossip, and abusive language. Words like fiery arrows. This is the spiritual war. Make sure you aren't the one shooting them. The tongue is a fire set on fire by hell, says James, the brother of the master. When under a barrage of flaming arrows, the wise soldier does not attempt to return fire. Rather, he takes shelter under his shield. Paul says that faith in God is the best shield against such assaults. In any case, if we know that the flaming darts of the evil one consist chiefly of evil speech, slander, and malicious talk, we should check ourselves to make sure that we are not the ones responsible for shooting the flaming darts on Satan's behalf. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, Ephesians 6.17. All of the aforementioned items of gear from the armory of spiritual warfare are defensive in nature. The only weapon in the kit is the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The same imagery appears in the epistle to the Hebrews. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Hebrews 4.12 This is the sharp sword, which issues from the mouth of the Messiah to strike down the nations. And there is some wordplay at work in the image of a sword coming out of the Messiah's mouth. In the Hebrew Bible, the cutting edge of a sword is called the mouth of the sword. And the sword is said to devour flesh as a mouth. The Hebrew word for a two-edged sword could literally be translated as two-mouthed, and the same holds true in the Greek. The sword that issues from the Messiah is the word of God, a term that can broadly apply to any message from God, but in the narrow sense, it should be understood as the Torah the prophets, the writings, and the teaching of Yeshua. Recall that when Satan came out to tempt the master, Yeshua only replied with quotations from the Torah. The Torah was in his mouth. He wielded the Torah as the sword of the Spirit. The scriptures are referred to as a sword issuing out from the mouth because the word of God in those days was memorized. It was supposed to be in your mouth as you repeated it for the sake of memorization and discussion. Once memorized, it was in your heart or upon your heart, Deuteronomy 6.4. What does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim, Romans 10.8, 1 
quoting Deuteronomy 30, verse 14, The word of God serves as an effective weapon against our enemy so long as it resides in our mouths and in our hearts. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. Ephesians 6.18 Paul calls upon the disciples in Ephesus to wage a spiritual war against Satan and the principalities, powers, and spiritual authorities in heavenly places. In addition to the spiritual armor which they must gird on, they have the weapon of God's word in their mouths. Moreover, they have the powerful weapon of prayer in their mouths. Paul reminds them to pray continuously at all times and not just at formal times of prayer. In the inner person, the spirit, the disciples should make every effort to maintain a continual, a continual ongoing conversation with God. No weapon on earth is more powerful than sincere prayer. In spiritual battles, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but we prevail by the word of God and by prayer. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Ephesians 6, 19 and 20. In conclusion, Paul reminds his readers to pray also for him and also for all the saints, that is, the holy ones, that is, the Jewish disciples, and all the brothers and sisters in Messiah. He specifically asks that God might inspire him with a bold spirit and eloquent words to convey the mystery of the gospel to those who would listen. What is the mystery of the gospel? Ephesians 3.6 says, This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in the Messiah, Yeshua, through the gospel. Paul considers himself the steward and ambassador of that particular revelation. While under house arrest in Rome and awaiting a trial before Nero, Paul considered himself to be an ambassador in chains for the sake of the proclamation of that mystery. After all, it was the message of Gentile inclusion that got him into trouble in the first place, beginning with his arrest in Acts 21. So that you may also know how I am doing and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. Ephesians 6, 21 and 22. Tychicus of Ephesus carried the letter from Rome, along with a stack of Paul's mail to other communities in Asia Minor. Tychicus was one of the Gentile delegates that Paul brought with him to Jerusalem before his arrest, Acts 20, verse 4. When news of his imprisonment in Rome reached them, the Ephesian disciples sent Tychicus to Rome carrying greetings, letters, gifts, and news from the congregations in Ephesus and other communities around Asia Minor. Tychicus remained in Rome with Paul for a short while before returning to Asia Minor with Onesimus, Colossians 4, 7, and 9. 
He carried several epistles for the disciples in Ephesus and the Lycus Valley. In the same mailbag, Tychicus carried Paul's letters to the congregations at Ephesus, Colossae, and Laodicea, and a piece of personal correspondence to a disciple in Colossae named Philemon. The epistle to the Ephesians concludes, Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith from God the Father and the Master Yeshua the Messiah. Grace be with all who love our Master Yeshua the Messiah with love incorruptible. Take on my yoke and learn from me and find rest for your soul.